Hello and welcome back. You're joining us today for Opportunity Thrives, the show where we are committed to better supporting the needs of today's secondary students. I'm your host, Jason Mitchell. And through interviews with students, teachers, administrators, technologists, and education influencers, we want to understand what's working in our schools today, what's not, and how we can impact positive and lasting change. And we would love to hear your feedback and suggestions on the show. Please click in the podcast notes to leave us a review, to provide your input, or just to send us questions. You can also reach out to us at info at opportunitythrives.com. On our show today, we have the pleasure of chatting with Dr. Quentin Shepard. He's the superintendent at Victoria ISD in Victoria, Texas. Thank you so much for joining us today, Quentin. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Of course, it's our pleasure. So let's get started on this. Do you want to tell us just a little bit about your background and maybe your path to becoming a superintendent in Victoria? Sure. In what feels like almost a former lifetime now, I was a music teacher and I taught pre-K all the way up through high school. So I would see the three and four-year-olds and the 18-year-olds in the same day. And it was always sort of remarkable to me how the three-year-olds could sometimes be more mature, but I, I certainly enjoyed it. It was a small little country school. I loved it. I loved my time there, but was fairly quickly called to leadership, education, administration, leadership. I just knew that was where I was meant to be. So I earned my principalship endorsement and applied for just one job. And it was also in central Illinois, a different community for an elementary principal. And to this day, don't know why, but they hired me. And so I was an elementary principal at 25 years old and enjoying it thoroughly and working with the high school principal who had been the former elementary principal and then moved up to the high school. And then he asked if we wanted to switch. And I thought, that's interesting because he wasn't necessarily loving the high school experience. And I was formerly high school trained. And so we switched roles and I was a high school principal the very next year in the same district. And then about halfway through the year, the board president calls me into the superintendent's office and the superintendent's there as well. And the superintendent says, I've taken a job at a different district. And the board president says, we'd like for you to apply to become our superintendent. And I honestly thought at 27 years old, they had lost their minds. But eventually they convinced me to apply. And so I was superintendent there for five years. A small school, but a great learning experience because I got to do everything. I was headhunted from there into what would be the first suburb if you drive out of the city of Chicago heading northwest. So that was Skokie School District. And it was a bit of a turnaround district. They were underperforming. I think they were rated the eighth worst district in Illinois the year that I started there. Five years later, we we had achieved financial recognition. We had closed achievement gaps. We had been recognized by the National School Boards Association. There's a lot of success. From there, I was uh, headhunted and recruited to Iowa to serve as a superintendent at a really high-performing school in the state, one of the highest-performing in the state and just enjoyed the success that I had there. And all along this, you know, 16 year career of a, a superintendency, I've come to realize my passion is working with school boards and working with communities that really want to embrace change. And a headhunter called me up and said, Hey, you got to check out Victoria, Texas. I know it's a move across the country, but you're going to love it. And I did. I fell in love with the district. I've been here now for three years. That's great. And Victoria is such a great city. So talk to me a little bit about when school closures first happened. How did you respond and how did your district respond to all of the challenges that you were facing? And then how has that changed up until now? Yeah, it's a great question. So the first and foremost, it was keep everyone safe. That was what needed to happen was keep everyone safe. There was just a lot of uncertainty. There was a lot of panic. There were a lot of needs, just basic human needs that both staff and students and community members needed. And all of the rest of the stuff that, you know, is education was secondary at that point. So I prioritized with my team, let's keep everyone safe, emotionally safe as, to the best of our ability, and obviously physically safe. And then let's focus on feeding people. 
Because, you know, when you shut down schools and communities rely on those food sources, we were focused entirely on that. Once that started to be established and a little bit more comfortable for people, then we started talking about education. What really rose, I think, to the surface for me was two things through the education process. The first is adaptive iteration. And the second is resilience. Mm -hmm. And the adaptive iteration thing is all about what I call the systemic architecture. Right? There's a systemic architecture that is the design of the education system. And we don't give enough credit to what this actually is for most superintendents or school leaders. But that systemic architecture is designed to do exactly what it does. But then the pandemic hit. So you had to rebuild parts of the systemic architecture to do something different. And that's what I mean by adaptive iteration. And we didn't actually know what we were doing. If we're being totally honest, like nobody knows how to educate kids during a pandemic when you have technology available to you. So we're going to build it as we go. But you have to iterate quickly to do that. So it's all about flexibility, right? That's the key. Flexibility is important and especially important to ask for both feedback and feed forward. So if I ask you for feedback, I'm asking you to tell me who I am. If I ask you for feed forward, I'm asking you to tell me who I am becoming. Right. And so we wanted to reach out to our community, our students, our teachers and say, how are we doing? How are we doing? How are we doing? And who do we want to be through this pandemic? How do we want to create a structure that's going to work for folks? So I talked a little bit about this in the last podcast, but one of the things that I referenced was the Honda Yamaha motorcycle wars of the 1980s. Like it's a brilliant case study of adaptive iteration in business world where one company decides to do nothing basically the same thing we've always done and it's going to work. Let's just see this thing through. And the other company iterated at about three times the rate and they were discontinuing models at about 10 times the rate. And essentially the second company is the one that prevails because it was quickly adapting to consumer demand. You know, and this is not just in the business world. It happens in military as well. You can talk about Colonel John Boyd and the OODA loop. The OODA loop is observe, orient, decide, and act. And he was the colonel who revolutionized dogfighting like the planes that do the dogfighting, our fighter pilots had lesser aircrafts. They had lesser firepower, lesser turning radius. Like they were inferior aircraft by every stretch of the imagination. But he trained the pilots to observe, orient, decide, and act. And it was a mental thought process. And by doing so, they outperformed a superior aircraft by like a factor of three or four to one. It's insane. We see this in the military. My point is we see it in the military, we see it in business. It's like a semi-foreign concept for us in, in education, and it shouldn't be. It's all about just iterating as quick as you can on your plan. So for us, it meant reaching out to students on a regular basis as we were developing our Safe Start, Strong Start plan. It meant reaching out to our teachers on a regular basis. We had about 800 teachers help write our plan. And then we went back to them and rewrote it and rewrote it and rewrote it. And it's exhausting, but for most parts, it's been beneficial for the system. Mm -hmm. So I have a good friend who's a city manager, and he talked about during this crisis, you take your focus and you only focus on the things that are most important. And what you had just said is that you started off focusing on meeting just the basic needs of, of your students. And now you're looking at a little bit different direction, a more an iterative direction that you're going to take. What do you think that's going to be? Where do you anticipate your district is going to move in this process? That's a really insightful question. And I think it's the conversation that is begging to be had right now on a national level. And frankly, it's a little bit frightening to me that we're not having that conversation because as we think back to COVID, it was like a whole bunch of planning, emergency planning, urgent planning to figure out how we're going to do remote instruction and then putting instruction together and talking to parents, talking about students. Well, what should we be talking about right now? Your question 
we should be talking about the learning plan that's ahead of us, right? We should be talking about what comes next. We should be talking about how are we going to help our students with basically having been in and out of school for the better part of a year now? I have a real problem with anyone who uses the phrase learning loss because learning loss somehow suggests that kids have missed something and it creates the opportunity for the school district to be accidental adversaries with parents or policymakers down the road. So I don't want to talk about learning loss, but I will talk about unfinished learning mm-hmm. because I'm an educator at heart and I believe kids can learn anything if we give them the opportunity to learn it. I think there's a tremendous amount of unfinished learning for our students across the country. We all should be talking about the unfinished learning plan that happens immediately as we come out of COVID. As soon as we come out of COVID, we need to have a plan in place and the districts that will fail, and this gets to my whole notion of complex and complicated leadership, the districts that will fail in this regard are the ones who put together a plan, they close their door, they bring together the geniuses that are the internal workings of the district and create some brilliant plan that they think makes a lot of sense. And then they try to sell it to their teachers and they try to sell it to their parents. And the parents, they're tired of this type of leadership. The parents recognize that the whole construct is a farce. They're like, no, it doesn't work that way. You're not always the smartest person in the room for every single decision. Let us have a voice. I think that this is the reason so many parents pulled their kids from public education. You can look at any state. You can look anywhere in the country. Parents have pulled their kids from public education in droves. I think a big part of it is because the district didn't ask for their voice. They didn't ask for the input. They didn't ask for the feed for it. And parents are like, you don't even take me seriously. So I'm going to go find somebody who does. My thinking is we work realizing this is a complex situation. We work with our community to build the plan. And by community, I mean teachers, I mean students, I mean parents, and then try to enact that plan with some ownership. You and I got to have a conversation about a year ago, and you you've really just, it was a casual conversation, and you just blew my mind with what you were talking about. And you used this term called radical transparency. I think it's what you're starting to touch on right here. And it was this connection that you had, this direct connect between the school district and a community that you serve. Would you just talk a little bit about what radical transparency is and how you've enacted it and what are the outcomes of that? For sure. Well, the radical transparency, we've even gone so far as to try to define it for us. And so for us, what it means is just unprecedented levels of accessibility to both information and to people. If you wanted to go and actually help us write our Safe Start, Strong Start plan, you could have done that because we were crowdsourcing it. And it didn't matter if you lived in Dallas or if you lived in Oregon. You could have helped us write our plan for that. And so we're transparent with everything. It doesn't matter what the document is. If it's public facing, you can find it on the web. You can have access to it. We did task forces here in the last several months. We've been working on task forces. We put every minute of every video of the task force meeting online. We put every document that was shared with the task force online. It's just volumes of information. And that's not for everybody. Not everybody wants that. But if they do want it, they should have access to it. And it's the same for people. Like you should be able to call and get in touch with the superintendent and that superintendent should be able to respond to you. That's just how this should work. But the reason that radical transparency works, and we didn't get a chance to talk about this, so thank you for bringing it up. But the reason that it works for me anyway is what I call compassionate leadership. And compassionate leadership is at the core of my being. 16 years as a superintendent, I didn't start this way, but I learned it as I went. And if you break that word down, compassion, passion is to suffer and compassion is to suffer with. Right. And so my leadership style, the suit that fits for me is to suffer with my community. It is to suffer with my teachers. It is to suffer with my students. And that doesn't mean just share your suffering with me because I want to take it on. It means I'm actually going to share my suffering with you. 
I'm suffering with you in that I don't know what we should do for the pandemic response plan. I honestly don't know because it's an unknowable problem. And I want to know where you're suffering. And if you're suffering with food scarcity issues or transportation issues, or you actually need somebody to babysit your kids, through like babysit, babysit, look after your kids, the custodial care. Great. Let me connect with that suffering. And that, of course, it's easy to say, oh, we want our leaders to be vulnerable, but it's really, really hard to be vulnerable. Well, the heart of compassionate leadership is vulnerability. And that's why radical transparency works, because it's built on that foundation of compassionate leadership in everything that you do. One of the components of that that I've struggled with is taking these really complex issues and dealing with them, A, in an iterative way, and then B, in a public way. I heard you use a term that was complicated. How do you affect, like, how do you do that? How do you make that happen? Yeah, that's this again has been a work in progress for several years. And, I, and we finally, I really feel like we hit some magic sauce here in Victoria in that the first year that I was here, it was a lot of time talking about the difference. Like complicated, it always has one right answer, right? And you usually hire somebody with a lot of expertise to do it. So for example, if I was going to disassemble and reassemble an aircraft engine, I'm not going to ask you to do that. That's a complicated task. Unless you have a background in, in mechanical engineering or something. But that is a complicated task, and you should hire an expert to do that. I have a staff of people who can do the complicated work of the district. My paradigm shift was recognizing that there are only two types of issues that come to my desk as a superintendent. They're either complicated or complex. And so I spent a, a better part of a year talking with my community that complex is inherently unknowable. And there's never one right answer. And the one thing we know for certain is if somebody says they know the right answer, you should run. You should run from that person because they don't know what they're talking about. But if we can all agree, that's compassion, like share your suffering. We don't know the right answer here. But if we can all agree that it's inherently unknowable, if we can get a lot of really smart people in a room together that want to solve this problem, we will land on the best idea. We won't land on the loudest voice. We will land on the best idea. My board actually adopted a resolution that this is how we do business in our district. If it is complex, we take it to our community and we crowdsource it. And so we've crowdsourced things like boundary changes. We've crowdsourced things like, should we close campuses? And if so, which ones? And should we merge them with other ones? We've crowdsourced things like, should we go out for a bond at this point? So we had a task force. And, and what's the power of crowdsourcing, you're wondering? Well, the power is this. We put together a bond task force. We made everything available. We crowdsourced the decision. We had 90% of the people were making the decision of whether we should proceed or not. 90% said, yes, let's proceed. Wow. Not, not 51%, not 60%. Like There's tremendous power in this. And it wasn't any one person who, who pushed the thing through. It was a group of really committed people who crowdsourced a solution. And it was the same thing for our boundary zoning. We did a big community presentation, you know, when you expect 500 people to show up and tell you you made a horrible decision. And there wasn't a single person who got up to the mic. Not one. Not one person came to the mic and said this was a bad decision. Wow. That's pretty amazing. I've sat on some panels specifically with district leaders who have talked about how they're getting excoriated right now just because their communities are so divided on the approach. That's part of the reason we wanted to bring you into this conversation is to share that because I think it's an issue that educators are genuinely struggling with right now. So I certainly appreciate you sharing that. One of the things I was sort of thinking about is as you were talking, you talked about this adaptive and iterative architecture, and then you talk about this radical transparency, and then you talk about sort of this communication cadence where you're talking about complex issues, not the complicated ones, but the complex ones with your community. And that seems to me that you have created a context or an environment that invites innovation. 
would you just talk a little bit about some of the, maybe the new learning programs that you've implemented and the process that you went through for evaluating and looking at your technology infrastructure or your curriculum infrastructure or your instructional approaches? Definitely. Yeah. Another great question. And we have, we've established a department of innovation here in the district. It's a, it sort of has the ability to move across other departments. It stands unto itself and does some really cool stuff, but how does it work? How do you create culture to make that work? Well, first of all, the way that I talk about innovation is you have to start by recognizing that it's all about reducing the cost of failure so that you can increase the value. Try lots and lots and lots of stuff, knowing that most of it's going to fail. And so you reduce the cost of failure by doing small pilot projects where you can, but what you're really doing is you're increasing the value. That is the heart of an innovation culture. But unfortunately, in too many education systems and businesses, I suspect, failure is equated with blame, right? You fail, you get blamed. And when you do that, you are virtually guaranteeing that people will not try stuff. You have created a culture where innovation cannot and will not ever happen because it's a culture of blame. So the net effect of that is that people are, of course, afraid to fail. And the unintended consequence, the unintended consequences of all of that is related to actually to the previous question that you asked me, that if people are afraid to report failure or problems, then the leadership isn't hearing the truth about what's actually happening in their system. So it seems totally counterintuitive, but the best way that leaders can insulate themselves against failure is to embrace it. Embrace it regularly. Get rid of blame. Embrace failure. Love the heck out of it. People will report failure, you celebrate that, and you move on. And it's amazing how it works. It's so counterintuitive, but it actually works. But your original question was about innovation. So let me come back to that. Because another, you asked what programs we've tried and how we've done that. The key language here in programs is the difference between adapt versus evolve. Adapt, to me, at least, is bringing on new content. Okay. Evolve is bringing in new users. And I don't think you should treat the two of them the same. So I think the smart play for education right now is to evolve so that you can adapt. Bring in new users, whether those users are homeschool students or private school students or students from other districts or you name it. We're in this virtual environment. Bring in new users, figure out what your innovation is to bring in new users, and then you build new content to support that. So for us, it's been like things like STEM academies at elementary schools. Like how many elementary schools are STEM academies? Yeah, not many. Not many, but you could you could buy a house in Victoria and your your child could get a STEM academy elementary school experience. Wow, that's pretty cool. That's very right. But we'll draw in users and then we build content around that. So it's adapt versus evolve and be very thoughtful about that. And then the, the last part of your question was how do you evaluate technology? And this one, to me, is a really simple capacity exercise. Like, what is our capacity to do X, whatever X is? It doesn't matter if this is technology. And this is my universal theory of capacity. So this should apply to everything that you ever think about, whether it's personally. Think about just for a minute something you're trying to build your own personal capacity to do. It should also work for the organization or the business or what have you. Basically, capacity is a three-legged stool. And a three-legged stool obviously can't stand without all three legs. I'll use myself as an example. Do I have the capacity to be an ultra marathoner? I was an ultra marathoner for a year, so I can talk about this. First of all, is it a priority? If it's a priority in my life, that's great. I have the capacity to do it. If it's not my priority to be an ultra marathoner, my capacity to be an ultra marathoner is greatly diminished, right? That's the easy one. Let's think about technology for a minute. A lot of schools have a lot of priorities. They have so many priorities that nothing is. 
So that's number one, rule number one. Is this a priority for us right now? Number two, do we have resources? Back to the ultra marathoning. Do I have time as a resource? Do I have the watch? Do I have you know the shoes, the gear? All that stuff is a resource in schools and in businesses and organizations. It's people, it's time, it's all the stuff they need to make this thing work. The more resources they have, the more capacity we have. The problem is that for most people, that's they think it's just those two legs and everything's fine. But it's the third leg that's actually most important because it's the leg we almost pay no attention to. And that is processes. What is my process for stretching? What's my process for warming up? What's my process for having a coach to help me add speed or add distance or whatever? It's all about processes, right? And that's back to your question about technology and evaluating technology. It's a capacity exercise. First of all, is this particular technological innovation, is it a priority for us? Do we have the adequate resources to support it? And have we given due diligence to the processes to maintain it, sustain it, and grow it? And I think that's just, it seems so simple when you say it that way, but we get so excited about resources and priority that we forget that processes actually matter. Very much so. So when you think about the future of everything that you've talked about, so we've gone through school closures, we're, we're coming out of that, we're starting to plan for next year. How are you going to plan differently for next year based on your experience and insights that you've had over the past year? What are you going to keep? What are you going to get rid of? And then how would you move forward? There's a couple of things that are really, really important that come out of this. The first is our focus and attention to social emotional learning. We've all known that this has been critical for a long time, but we've not prioritized it. You know, it's back to this capacity thing. Now it's become a key priority for a lot of school districts. It has to be kept. It has to be kept and we have to continue to build on it. When it comes to the education of students and what that looks like, I think that there's something that has to be kept from this whole experience. And I'm one to step back and look at the bigger picture as opposed to the minute details. So let me step back for a minute and talk about why do people adopt new technologies? I think I could be wrong, but I've yet to have somebody tell me I'm wrong. But I think they only adopt new technologies for one of three reasons. First of all, it's like social. So think email and texting and you know telephones and all that stuff. It's entertainment, like television and, and some of those things you find on YouTube or whatever, or it's survival. Like I learned to use email because my survival depended on it, right? For education, technology has not really social. There's a part of it, but it doesn't function that way. It's not really entertaining, let's be honest. And it hasn't been survival until this year. And now it's part of survival for us to continue to progress forward. And so I think it is here to stay, this format, you and me having a real conversation, a genuine conversation, not in the same room. So I think that is here to stay. Now, how does it stay is what's important. So the traditional model of teaching prior to computers and technology and the whole bit, essentially, it's a way, way super complicated, but essentially boils down to this. Concentration of knowledge. I'm the teacher. I know stuff. Distribution of knowledge. I'm going to teach you. Before the internet, that's how it worked, right? Concentration, distribution. And I would use the textbook to facilitate that process. The problem is kids and parents, they'll call BS on that because it's no longer concentration, right? I can go to Google. I can go to Google and I can find somebody who can teach it and I can find somebody who can teach it probably better than you can. Fair enough. So if it's no longer concentration, but it's concentrated somewhere in the public sphere, then The name of the game right now coming out of this is distribution. It's all about distribution. And I think, so what is the thing that we take out of this? This is, if there's anybody who's looking to become a billionaire in education right now, 
build a distribution network that works. Because the teachers can't, what we've, what we've discovered through this pandemic is if I go to this site for this and I go to that site for that, and I go to this site for this and I've got to have a hundred, you know, gazillion different websites to do you know, a bunch of different stuff. It doesn't work right. because it's not fully concentrated and distributed. But the minute somebody figures that out, it will take what we're doing now and put it on steroids. Boy, you're not, you're not kidding about that. We can develop this sort of seamless, integrated ed tech ecosystem. We're just not there yet. Um, as an industry, I see us steering in that direction, and it's pretty exciting. Yeah, it absolutely is. And I think, you know, again, my charge for leadership would be to embrace the compassionate for not just the education leaders, but for the business folks, too, for those ed tech entrepreneurs to share with. It's why I despise the word vendor. Like, I don't want to be in a vendor relationship with anybody. I want to be in a partner relationship. Right. I want for that partner to share with me, here's where we're at with the company. Here's this one or two things we're doing really well. Here's what we suck at a lot. And we're trying to get a lot better at it, frankly. And then yeah. ask me to share my suffering. Like, where are you suffering with kids, Quentin? And I would tell them, I know exactly where I'm suffering with kids. And if we can connect our suffering, then we're all so much better. But what turns me off now is the sheer volume of emails that come in from vendors that are like, oh, we have this tool and it solves all your problems. You have a tool, but it absolutely does not solve all my problems. But if you can work with me and we can find what you do really well, if it's something that I absolutely need, then let's get after it. Yeah, it's different. I think that this pandemic, sort of in that same vein that we were talking about, it forces you to prioritize and focus on the most important things. I think with school districts and what I saw, their relationship with vendors, that's precisely what happened. Like, you know, they separated the wheat from the chaff and they kept the ones that were really an important and integrated part of their system. Move forward with that. Absolutely. Yeah, without a doubt. So if you think at that lowest level, let's assume that I'm the school district, you're the vendor this particular exercise. So like at that lowest, lowest level, it's like a transactional experience. You have this thing, I have some cash, we're going to trade. And it's built on this foundation that it's all around expectation. You have an expectation that I'm going to do my part of it. And I have an expectation you're going to do your part of it. And it's awesome. And then out of that, what do you get? It's like an equation. What do you get at the, after the equal sign? You get loyalty. Like, okay, I'll be loyal. It's the loyalty that some people have for like McDonald's. It's a transaction. I have a certain expectation that my beef is going to be a certain temperature or whatever. And so I'm loyal to McDonald's, right? Okay. But I'm not even remotely interested in that because you can get that anywhere. You can get that almost anywhere. There's this next level that we're trying to ascribe to all of us. And it's about, if it's not transaction, then it's relationship. Like you and I are not having a transaction right now. You and I are having a relationship-based conversation, which is different, right? And it's not built on expectations because at some point 30 or 40 minutes ago, you and I stopped thinking about our expectations for each other, but we both desire to do something right now. So you move from expectation to desire. Like I desire to talk about this thing. You desire to get the word out and help spread the word. And so we're in a totally different relationship right now. And so what do we get? What's the equation thing? Well, it's no longer loyalty, right? Now we're talking enthusiasm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I'm excited to do this and hopefully you're excited to be a part of the thing and we figure out where we go from here. Yeah. And it's so easy. It's so easy. But at the same time, it's so doggone complicated because most people don't think about that. They don't focus on that. But it's the relationship gets you to desire, gets you to enthusiasm. I think people fear asking that deeper level question. I rarely see vendors ask that of their district partners and say like, Quentin, you know, tell me. Yeah, I mean, if they have sort of that stock question, like what keeps you up at night, which is not really what they're getting at. They're really trying to sell you something more with that. 
I think what they're afraid to do is sit down and say, all right, let's hack this out. And maybe it's some degree of fear. Maybe it's also being fearful of asking you all for your time for that. I hadn't thought about it that way. From my perspective as a superintendent, it's the fear of admitting that we're not perfect at everything. Like, again, it goes back to that culture of blame, right? And it's such a huge hindrance for us as superintendents to have this conversation with you in that I'm struggling right now with fifth grade boys' math scores. Mm-hmm. Don't tell me it's a math program for every kid. and every, No, no, no. I know exactly where my problem is and I need help, right? But that's that fear of failure and admitting failure. But it's interesting how you frame that, that there's another side to that coin too. And we're both kind of getting in our own way to some yeah. degree. It's so interesting. And I love how the dynamic has evolved. And frankly, I think I really appreciate how the expectations have evolved from vendors and districts and districts expecting more of their vendors. And if they don't deliver, they let them know. I mean, I think it's great. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And I think moving along that ladder is a decidedly good thing because everybody benefits, but the ultimate beneficiary, of course, is the kids. And, you know, we're all trying to bend the trend on student learning in a positive way. Any way that we can do that, it's a win for all of us. All right. I have just one quick final question because you have a a very unique perspective in the way that you look at at things. It's clear that you've got a thinking process and framework that you use. Where do you go for your professional development? Like, How do you develop your thinking and executive skills? Wow. That's a really good question. I turn a lot to the world of business or military. It's just so much of this has already been discovered in the world of business. And we act like it doesn't apply to education in any appreciable way. And it clearly does. And I read a fair bit of, you know, behavioral psychology and that sort of thing as well, because I'm really interested in, you know, why we as humans do how we make the decisions we do. I think I'd add on top of that, that I have a fairly wide national network of people that I consider to be thought partners, and they're not all educators. A good portion of them are business people, you know, CEOs or what have you that I try to interface with on a regular basis because they push my thinking. They get me way outside my own head in terms of what I think works and what doesn't work. And a good portion of that is what has helped me evolve. What I think, I'm going to go back to a question you asked me a couple of questions ago because it's, it bears repeating here. I think the single most important thing that will come out of the pandemic that we should take forward is that we have got to find a way to put the public back in public education. Right? We took public out. We stopped putting public at the forefront of everything that we do. But feeding families, adults and kids, during the winter weather crisis that we just lived through here in Texas is the how and why we put the public in public education. And if all we do as leaders, to come back to your initial question, is read education books or education leadership books, we're slowly spinning ourselves in the wrong direction. We've got to re-spin ourselves in the right direction. And that means we've got to think differently about leadership. We've got to think differently about how we interact with people and how we make decisions and the whole gamut, frankly. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because H-E-B, the grocery store chain that navigated those winter weather storms in Texas as well, they took a completely different approach. Their power went off and they just said, you know what, you all keep shopping, fill up your baskets, don't worry about payment. I mean, think about what a difference that is from a, a typical store. Yeah, that is a perfect example of the difference between competence-based leadership. Like, can you do this? Can you do this? Give me the money. It's a transaction. All the stuff we've talked about in the last few minutes versus compassionate leadership. You're suffering. You need food. We're suffering. We don't have power. So let's just agree that we're suffering together and we'll sort through this together. 
that was just such a spectacular example. And I know that you all dedicated a lot of resources and time and effort to defeating your community as well. And that, you know, when I think about just the partnerships and the importance of that school community relationship, I really appreciate and commend you for the way that you engage and interact with your community. You are a part of it. It's not the school and a community. It's it's integrated. So congratulations right. on that. Well, thank you for that. My deputy superintendent and I were actually just talking about this today, and he remarked something really interesting to me. He said, you know, we're all, as human beings, we're all selling something. Like, that's just what we do. Every single person walking this planet is selling something. We are called to sell hope. That's our calling. We sell hope. And, and it's something that we actually believe in. Like, we genuinely believe we're selling hope because what happens is it's connected to a belief in what's possible. And a belief in what's possible creates indomitable optimism, right? And that then creates more hope. And that's how you build a cycle. Because we're in education, we believe we're on a course of improvement. So I think as tragic as some of this has been, it's also very inspiring. Very, very, very inspiring. There are so many silver linings in everything that has happened. And I really, truly do think it brings out the best in people. And I know I've gone way over your allotted time. So I want to be respectful of that. I've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed it tremendously. Absolutely. I have as well. I want to say thank you. Thank you for your commitment to your students. Thank you for your thoughtful, deliberate discussion that you have with your communities. And I think that at the end of the day, we're all focused on the same thing. And it is creating more opportunities for more of the students in the communities that we serve. So I sincerely appreciate what you do. Thanks for sharing your expertise and your insights and wisdom and, and your vulnerability along the way. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks again for having me. Do you have a place where you could send viewers to learn more? So if people wanted to follow your work? Yeah, bulk of what I put out there occurs on LinkedIn. So you can find me just Quentin Shepard on LinkedIn. That's where I do most of my writing and posting and blogging. Uh, I do a little bit on Twitter, but that's sort of hit and miss. I'm more focused on a little more content, a little, a little deeper stuff on LinkedIn. Yeah, that complex issues require more than 240 characters. <laughs> exactly years. right. So excellent. All right. Well, thank you for that. And thank you, Opportunity Thrives listeners. Thank you for your time today. I hope that you're enjoying our podcast. We would love it if you would take just a few minutes of your time and share your feedback on our shows by providing a review either on Spotify, iTunes, or whatever platform you're listening on. And please reach out to us with any questions or comments at info at opportunitythrives.com. Thank you so much for tuning in today, and we will see you next time.